Welcome to A Rabbi and a Lawyer Walk Into a Bar, a podcast with relatively well-informed and irreverent musings on religion, news, and society. And now, for your hosts, Rabbi Asher Lopatin and John Geringer. Hey, John, how are you? I'm doing well, Asher. You have been a traveling man. Tell us about it. Well, and I should say that you travel quite a lot yourself, but uh, I did go on an amazing trip last week with our Coalition for Black and Jewish Unity. So it's a group of mostly Black clergy, missionary Baptists, and about 11 of them, including some spouses, and then 13 Jews, some rabbis, but mostly lay people. And it was a very, very powerful trip. It was a civil rights mission. We went first to Atlanta to experience some of the Martin Luther King Ebenezer Church feeling there. Then we went to Birmingham, where church was bombed, and we met with a 90-year-old who was actually Martin Luther King's last driver when he drove him to Memphis in 68 when he was assassinated. So he was the last person who saw him in, in Birmingham. Uh, and, yeah, yeah, very power, powerful park there where dog, you know, sort of statues and dogs and the water cannons. And and then we went to Selma, across the Edmund Petty Bridge from over the Alabama River. Uh, but also there we met with a woman who was 14 years old walking with Martin Luther King and Heschel. Uh, Abram Joshua, Rabbi Abram Joshua Heschel over the Edmund Petty Bridge towards and to Montgomery. She was on that five-day march from Selma to Montgomery. And it's amazing, those two days, the people that we met, the 90-year-old bishop, Bishop Woods, and the formerly 14-year-old, who's in her 70s, so positive, so full of energy, so full of, of hope and, and desire to keep moving and not to let terrible discrimination and racism and hatred stop them. You know, both of them were, were beaten at various times. Then we ended off in Montgomery, which has very, the lynching, the lynching memorial, which was like a Yad Vashem, really. I've seen pictures of it. Yeah, it's yeah, powerful. Really, and you go through county by county by county in the South with so many lynchings and and then right next to it is the Legacy Museum, which is really chronicles. It's like, again, it's like a Yad Vashem or a, the Washington Holocaust Memorial really goes through slavery and then Jim Crow and, and so horrific. And the issues that we still face now is very powerful to do with our Black brothers and sisters. And just the beginning of the conversation, there were a lot of difficult conversations that we really just started in connecting Jews and the Black community. and But I hope it continues, our relationship continues to deepen. So really, very profoundly moving. I mean, I'm proud that Jews played, I don't want to say a pivotal role, but a, at least a supporting role in supporting African-Americans during that time. And, and some of them even risked their lives. Yeah, we, what was it, like 60% of the white folks who came down to the South to help out, whether Freedom Riders, whoever they were, were Jewish, 60%. And we are 2.5% of the country. 
So, you know, not enough. And there's still, you know, major issues that we really, that we face that I think we can, as a Jewish community, can help with. But yeah, we did play an outsized role and it's something we can be proud of. But I think our work is not done. Our work is really not done yet. Yeah, I had the opportunity to visit the African-American Museum in D.C. I don't know if you've had a chance to see no, that. No, no. It, it's so powerful. You you have this, you know, many floors. You start with the one floor where they were brought over as slaves and and you, you keep going. And every floor, it gets a little bit brighter, you know, metaphorically until the end. It's just music and sports and intellectual creativity and all, all these other things. But you start... In, in a very, very deep, dark place, you know, where they show what the ships look like and what the enslavement oh. camps look like. And it was an incredibly powerful experience. It's incredible what human beings can do to other human beings. And one of the rabbis did point out that at least the way our trip took it, the going from Atlanta to Birmingham to Montgomery, was different. Yad Vashem also, when you get out of Yad Vashem, it's you see... Israel alive. Thank God we are here. We're alive. They did not destroy us in the hope. This one didn't end so happy. It, it really, you know, there's still, there's, and we can discuss this mass incarcer incarceration. There were still, you know, in the constitution, you can still enslave people who are in prison. You can't enslave them when they're not, but imprisoned people and chain gangs, like Alabama's got something like 78% of its state revenue from chain gangs, from renting out prisoners to private interest to work and to suffer. And so there's just a lot of, it wasn't quite like that. Yes, you know, and I know actually, even in Detroit, we have a great museum, the Charles H. Wright Museum, that also ends, like you said, with with hope, with a live end. And there is that, but this was a little bit more troubling and, and disturbing and, and didn't quite end off with that woof, we made it. We made it to the other side. Yeah. And I think everybody thought that with the election of President Obama, that that would be the happy ending to the story. And it actually yeah. turned out to be what brought us, unfortunately, a few steps back and reignited the racism and other hatreds that were simmering under the surface. Yeah. Yeah. Look, it's and it's sad this week after that Arab Spring that really did not work out very well. And Syria is now part of the Arab League again, you know, killed off 300,000 people, half the population displaced. But welcome back, Assad. <laughs> welcome back. Job well done, Assad. Yeah. Here's the red carpet treatment, buddy. Yeah, it's a tough place in the Middle East. And, you know, I, I, we, I, John, I don't know, you know, you are very much, first of all, really an expert in in morality of war, the ethics of war, and in terrorism. And so, you know, this last week about Israel had an, quite a bout with Islamic Jihad and a lot of I don't know, like 1,500 missiles coming over, rockets coming over. But I wonder whether you think that we got Iron Dome. And so, you know, it wasn't so bad for the Israelis, except for tragically, one person was killed in Rehovot. What do, you, what do you think? What do you make of that five-day flare-up with 1,500 rockets? Israel hit some of the Islamic Jihad people. You know, what What? What do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, there are notions in customary international law around discrimination and proportionality with respect to how you deal with potential civilian casualties. It seems to me that what is being launched out of Gaza 
are intended to strike civilian targets, mm -hmm. uh, which is obviously prohibited. And what Israel is doing in defense with the Iron Dome, A, Iron Dome is only attacking those missiles that are coming out. But then you get to the question of what about those missiles that Israel is sending into Gaza? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've heard many briefings from many Israeli, you know, military legal officers who've talked about the steps that they take to avoid, you know, indiscriminate killing of civilians. They target when they can, you know, specific floors or even specific rooms to yeah, avoid right. civilian, civilian damage and casualties. But it's inevitable in warfare and, and international law does account for the possibility of civilian deaths and property damage. But the obviously the goal is to limit it to the extent possible. And there's, there's a balance that's struck depending on the target. If your target is of a military necessity, there's kind of baked into the process that there's the kind of inherent permissibility of the potential for additional civilian harm, as opposed to going after the normal foot soldier. So it's a very complicated balance. If you ever seen the movie Eye in the Sky, it does a very good job. Yeah. It's oh. a British movie that does a very good job of walking through the legal, the moral, the political aspects of how one is supposed to think about those things under an international law. But look, as a human being, I don't like to see Palestinians suffering in any way, shape or form, much less, you know, because of something that Israel has done. But in, in light of the fact that they are placing their military encampments in the middle of civilian locations, that itself is inherently a war crime. You force the other side to hit civilians, but that that's to them a, a feature, not a bug. Yeah, incredible. And, and incredible how some of the rockets from Gaza actually killed Palestinian, the Gaza worker working in Israel. And uh, that's right. And so many of the rockets fell like 10, 20 percent fell in Gaza itself and didn't even get out of Gaza. And, and luckily, Israel has the videos to prove that because otherwise, like many terrorist groups, they use propaganda and it's easy to show civilian suffering without showing the broader context. People have to get a sense of proportionality. In previous wars with Gaza, thousands of Gazans were killed when, when Israel had to go in. In I think two years ago, it was in the hundreds. And this time it was like, I think 32 was a very, just in the tens, which no life, every life is precious. Every single life is precious. But when you can really knock out six of the leaders of Islamic Jihad and a minimal, a minimal amount of collateral damage, again, any, every life is precious, but let's get a little perspective. I hope that Hamas feels okay, so that they mostly stayed out. And now actually Israel has opened up the border for more guest workers to come into Israel to earn money, to bring back to their families in Gaza. It's a strange situation going on. You know, certainly Hezbollah stayed out of this. You know, what is Iran doing? It's, it's so, but anyway, we hope for peace in Israel. I'm heading there in a few weeks with a Muslim Jewish Christian delegation a very small group just five of us two muslims <laughs> i was gonna say that sounds like the beginning of a joke to a muslim christian the jew walk into israel i know it's like a rabbi and a lawyer walking to a bar so but we're still planning to go god willing you know and and with a hopefully a tour guy the guy i'm working with is an american palestinian israeli so wow yeah so 
we're planning to, you know, really get a sense of how amazing Israel is and look at Ramallah and Beit Lechem, Bethlehem, and, and some of maybe even Hebron, even Halil, the uh, tricky city. I was going to say, are you going in an armored car? Yeah, I don't know. Well, I we're, we'll work on it. I don't know. I mean, you know, when when Encounter, it's a great organization, does this, they don't go with an armed guard, particularly, you know, things like uh, Johnny Cash, don't take your gun to town, Bill. So, um, <laughs> but, but we'll see. We'll make sure everything's very secure. Yeah, maybe wear a baseball cap. <laughs> Absolutely. Will do. Will do. Well, I see you got your haircut on. No, I am actually, John, I'm one of the few that did not get a Lagba Omer haircut, but you, I know, did. I did, because we, as we discussed briefly last time, we passed the 33rd day of the Omer, which means the the plague of the killing of the, the 24,000 Rabbi Akiva students ended, or the, the fighting stopped in the rebellion. And, you know, being the, the yard side of Shimon Bar Yochai, this famous rabbi, it became the time after which we are allowed to get haircuts. We are allowed to have more festive activities. And uh, we have a band that we play on Lagba Omer called No Tachanun, which is a play on the fact that there is a prayer that said on most days called Tachanun, except for happy days. And on those days, everyone's yelling, No Tachanun. So we figured that would be a good name for our Lagba Omer band. That's, a fan- that's fantastic. John, I remember the great band you used to do on Purim at Anshi Shalom. That was amazing. That was really something special. Yeah, instead of Sweet Home Alabama, we did Sweet Home Anshi Shalom. <laughs> yeah. Now I think about, I mean, look, there are a lot of good people and good people in Alabama, but I'm a little traumatized from Montgomery, Alabama. And but when you sing it, it it makes it sound <laughs> sweet and good. It takes on a different flavor. Well. Lagbom was such an interesting holiday, right? You the Hasidim use it typically when they do their upshurn when they're their children for what three years is yeah, it? Yeah, uh, they grow years. their hair long, and that's when they cut their hair to to maintain the the sideburns that are prevalent and long in the Hasidic community. Yeah. And so they've chosen that day to do that. And, uh, and you know, it's like a tree, and the, the Torah talks about it that for the first three years, you're not allowed to get any fruit, use any fruit from a tree. It's called orla. So there's a little bit of a, sort of a mystical approach that hair has a certain holiness, sort of hair is fruit. So you don't cut the hair of a, at least of a boy. My sister did an upsharing with her daughter. She held up for three years. Uh, with her daughter. So you can do a man or women. There's no discrimination, but uh, it does hearken to something really makes the idea of of hair something special. And there you go again with that, people getting haircuts on, on Lagba Omer itself. Right. And there's bonfires that are done, sort of the yeah. symbolic light of the, the Kabbalah and the Zohar. We'll talk about that in a second. And there would be celebrations, speaking of Israel, in Meron, at yeah. the tomb of this guy, Shimon Bar Yochai, unfortunately, in 2021, you know, they have like 100,000 people come to these things. And I think there was 45 killed and 150 injured. It, it's near Sfat. And and thank God this year there was nothing even close to that after they apparently took precautionary steps to make sure that wouldn't happen again. Yeah, it was a collapse. A platform collapsed and the, the gateways collapsed and people trampled on each other. It was a real breakdown you know the the issue is like there was a lot of pressure 
on the police, on the design, everyone like let as many people in. What are you not letting me into, you know, Meron and to see the grave? And I was there once. Actually, I don't know. It wasn't so crowded when I was there but on Log Bomber. But, you know, it was so crowded and it's just so tragic that on such a happy time, people people died. And, you know, I, I want to throw in one thing that the students, and I think we mentioned this last time, the 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva died because they didn't show honor to each other. Now, this is a time where now Israel is working out, I hope, I pray, a compromise on judicial reform. It's a very it's kind of a complicated thing, but it's something that really, if they can reach a compromise on that, on balancing the powers between the, the parliament and the judiciary, it'll be a great thing. I hope that they really keep in mind that how destructive we can be to, towards each other and we don't show respect to each other. But when we do show the respect, that's the way to really build up a, a state, you know, a Jewish state that's a model for all countries. And it's look, it's a legitimate debate to have how much power you want to give to your Supreme Court, right? We've seen that just <laughs> a little bit here in this country. And you know, whether or not a Supreme Court justice can take thousands of dollars of gifts, et cetera, et cetera. But it's a good debate to have. And and one of our mutual friends who spent a lot of time in Israel was describing it to me that in Israel they apparently appoint their Supreme Justices based on their equivalent of like what we would call the American Bar Association, where politics are less of the process. And there's something to be said about adding some democracy in, in how you choose your Supreme Court Justices and what's the right balance between what, you know, whether it be six or 12 or however many people make decisions for, you know, in our case, 330 million, in their case, what do they have, 12 right. or 13 million? You know, it's a good debate to have, and the pendulum shouldn't swing too far to either side. Yeah, I mean, it's so fascinating that that folks that probably would want our Supreme Court in America to have a little less power um, are sort of advocating, no, the Supreme Court in Israel needs more power. So it's, uh, yeah, fascinating. The types of people that are on each side are, it's, it's, very complicated for American liberal Jews and in general progressives to to match up what's going on in Israel because some of the more sort of progressive types in America that you would think in America and Israel are the ones that are more on the right sort of you know and and maybe folks that have less incomes and folks that have been discriminated against in the past in Israel those folks are more on the right in Israel, whereas in America, frequently people that have been discriminated against, including Jews, are on the left. So it's wild. But I guess the critical thing is in these debates, let's try to you know, instill an atmosphere of respect and love and, and, and concern for one another. So we'll see. I hope Israel can really be a model of that. It is a great model that these protests have been really nonviolent, you know, hundreds of thousands of, I mean, over the course of the last few months, millions of people with Israeli flag, they've been patriotic, they've been warm, they've been liberal, they've been progressive, and they've not been violent, which is amazing. Yeah, the best story I heard is some so social media tweet out there where somebody had asked, can I borrow a flag for my protest? And the other guy said, yes, 
but when you're done, I need it for a protest on the other side. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's it's something beautiful. So Israeli. It's so Israeli. It goes to show that you look, we're on different sides of a political dynamic, but there is an anchor there. You know, there's a pintalayita, you know, those sort of the soul of the Jew that that keeps things anchored over there, hopefully. Yeah, and and I just saw recently that Israel is ranked number four happiest country in the world. You know, people think of Israel, if you haven't visited, like it's a bunker with missiles falling and, you know, it's the happiest place in the world, except for Finland or Denmark or something like that. Some of the Scandinavian countries. Um, yeah, just just listen to what what Nora Carroll's Eurovision song, right? Unicorn. Just play that a few times and you'll be happy. She took, I think, third after Sweden and Finland, but it's a really happy song. One explanation is that Israelis really have a sense of mission and purpose. And I hope that we, wherever you're listening to this podcast, think about, you know, our own lives. I hope we really have some, a sense of mission and purpose. What is our mission in this world? It's, of course, we want to take care of our families, buy nice cars and all that, but, but you know, what is our purpose in this world? And in Israel, they really feel people have a deep, deep sense of purpose. People, most people go into the army, you know, really to fight for the country. And so that really leads to happiness. And so even in these protests, in the midst of these protests and the politics and all that, the happiest country in the world, one of the happiest countries in the world. Right. There's a there's a quote from Pirkei Avos, Ethics of Our Fathers, right, which arguments are whether they're for the sake of heaven or not. And the ones that for the sake of heaven are the ones that will last. Rabbi Norman Lamb of Blessed Memory, his commentary, he said, how do you know that an argument is for the sake of heaven? It's when you feel the other side is arguing in a sincere way. Not just you think your argument is sincere, you think the other side is sincere. So, you know, let's get back there. It's not not easy and it's frustrating. And, you know, we locally in Detroit, we have arguments with maybe certain members of Congress and maybe some activists. But I do want to get to a place where we can say we disagree. I disagree profoundly with you. And at the same time, I respect you. And I realize you're coming from a position of sincerity, if that's true, if that's true. Yeah, well, Shimbar Yochai found that out the hard way, right? He was in a cave for 12 years with his son. And then, you know, being all mystical and whatever he was, then he comes out and he sees people engaged in mundane activities, you know, doing agriculture work, and basically, you know, used his laser eyes to fry him up. At least that's how the story goes. And then God says, Marjorie, by Marjorie Taylor Green, you know, the, the laser eyes, you know, that's probably where she got it from. Right. Well, right. The laser eyes became a laser satellite, Jewish satellite. So that's probably she might have been reading the Zohar. So anyway, so God tells him, go back in the cave. You know, you don't belong in this world. And then he comes back out and he he learns his lesson. So there's something to be said about you know, mm-hmm. being a little bit too robust in your ideology. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, we really got to find that, that balance and that right, that don't let your ideology convince you that everyone else is wrong and everyone else is bad and worthless. Yeah, it, great. It's such a powerful lesson. And Shema Bar Yochai, according to our tradition, is the author of the Zohar. And John, what, you're like a little into Zohar and Kabbalah. What's the story there? 
Well, not, not quite as much as Madonna. And I, I think we should kick Kabbalah to a, its own show. But but for now, I think the important thing to talk about in this week's news is there are these 10 spherot, which are like these filters through which God's light passes through, if you believe that. One of which is known as Malchut, otherwise known as Kingdom. And something exciting happened surrounding Kingdoms this week, which was what? Da, 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 da. The coronation of wow. King Charles III. Yeah. And and to me, the, the most fascinating part of the whole thing was seeing the social media of Chief Rabbi Ephraim Mirvis, who's Orthodox, who for the first time, I guess, they invited clergy from other religious groups to participate, which is good. It, it didn't go over as badly as it did in 1189 for the coronation of Richard I, where the Jews attempted to bring gifts to him and a pogrom ensued. So we, yeah. we've come a long way, baby. And, <laughs> and and so, and you've met Rabbi Mirvis, right? Yeah, Rabbi Mirvis is a great man. You know, the, the chief rabbis of England are always trying to balance. It's a big balancing act. They have the court. The court of the chief rabbi is the London Beth Dean, which is usually much more right-wing and ultra-Orthodox than the rest of the community or a majority of the community. So the chief rabbi is always doing a balancing act to keep the court, the Beitin happy, but to really try to do some good and bring all Jews together. So chief, more than any other chief rabbi, I know Jonathan Sachs was incredible and really, but blessed memory and the most amazing, probably writer that Judaism has seen for decades and decades. Sorry, Talushkin's amazing, everyone. But really... <laughs> so I, I keep saying about him, if I'm stuck on a desert island and I can't be with Jen and I can't be with you, I want to be with sex. Yeah, I mean, thank you. I'm, <laughs> but, but Chief Rabbi Mervis has really found this balance in very important ways. So I would say one very important way is he came out with a paper on how to be inclusive of LGBTQ folks in the Jewish and the Orthodox community, the Jewish community, very powerful, very respectful, uh, and one that is being used by schools in America also, by Orthodox Jewish day schools in America. I would say progressive. And and the other thing he did, which was so bold, is now you have it all over the world, but it started in England, Limud, which is a, everyone comes together to learn for a week. And from all over England, people came. I went to it a couple of times in Nottingham in England. And, and it's non-denominational. Anyone can teach. Anyone who wants to teach anything can teach. And unfortunately, the chief rabbis used to stay away from it because they were afraid that the London Bethan would get angry at them because you're recognizing non-Orthodox people as being able to teach Torah and being legitimate and all that. Rabbi Mervis came in. That's where I met him. I met him at, at Limud. And it was very bold of him to say, I'm going to do this. It's not going to, people will get over it. The London Bethan, whoever will get over it. And he goes, he doesn't go, I think, every year, but like every other year. That's very brave. And then, John, I know you sent me a lot of, of tweets about him and the coronation. Yeah, sometimes I feel like your crazy uncle who sends you too much social media. <laughs> I love it. Bring it on. Bring it on. <laughs> but hey, we got to brainstorm about ideas for this podcast, right? But I, I couldn't help myself because it was just such a Kiddush Hashem, such a sanctification of God's name to see that 
King Charles allowed him to, to basically spend the night at St. James Palace. I assume that that's the equivalent of the Lincoln bedroom. Uh, you know, he was allowed to, to walk to the coronation. And it, it was great to hear everything he was talking about because he talks about Shabbat as a digital detox, which I thought was pretty cool. And he said that it was actually... King, King Charles's ideas or his people's ideas to say to him before he could even ask, look, we understand your Shabbat thing. You don't have to use a microphone. You can spend the night nearby. You can walk. We'll get you a kosher cater. And and they even did Havdalah ceremony at the end that he videoed, which was just amazing to see. And like I said, a monstrous contrast between that and 1189 when it didn't end so well. Yeah, it's, it's you know, England's, you know, the kingdom... Who knows where we would be if we were still a colony of, of England, of Great Britain. Maybe we'd be even more advanced. Maybe we'd have better gun control laws than we have. But yeah, it, I, I'm impressed. And I've read that Charles III, King Charles, is considering seriously coming to Israel. And that's something that the royal family always stayed away from. You know, again, everyone is does a balancing act. And I don't want to hold them responsible for that because... England's been a good ally of Israel overall, but this would be really very, very significant. And the more self-confidence you give to Israel and accept Israel, it's not that that's at the expense of the Palestinian, quite to the contrary. The more Israel feels secure in the world, I think the more Israel will be open to working on shared society with its both the Palestinians in Israel and the Palestinians in the West Bank. And so I think that that could be a really, that could be a huge visit. And I'm also happy that in this climate, you know, like in the Omer and, you know, with Rabbi Kiva students, I think Prince Harry behaved nicely and Prince William. I didn't read anything about that they fought or anything like that. No, there were no fist fights that I could tell. And one of the interesting thing that Rabbi Mervis talked about was, you know, when you are a proud Jew and let people know here are your bright lines, they'll respect you. He he mentioned walking from the palace to the coronation and people yelling at him, Shalom and Shabbat Shalom. And and he said yeah. that really, you know, it's about feeling proud of who you are, and and that gets reciprocated. In general, that's been my feeling. Now we have a wonderful member of our community, a Chaldean who wants to lead a trip to Iraq and- Okay, so so there's there are exceptions to the general rule. One, Iraq. <laughs> Two, your trip to Ramallah. Let's not walk around too proudly when you're in Ramallah. So, so we'll have to see. But overall, I think you're, it's so important for, for Jews and for anyone, for Christians, for Muslims, for Hindus, to be proud of, of who they are. And that, again, that pride should not be- to close out connections with other people, but it's important to be proud of who you are. You know, I I do want to say that we have to work a little bit on understanding the 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 Torah passage. We talked a little bit about slavery. I'm sorry to bring this was like half an hour. You can rewind the podcast. You know, we were talking about my trip. <laughs> you to can the see South. how much how much planning really goes into these podcasts. <laughs> well, it's kind of like a bookend kind of thing. But this week, the portions we read are about. Some of the most progressive views about how my children should not be slaves. We're slaves to God and not to human beings. Yay! And the Jubilee year and the Shemitah year and, and great stuff like the land belongs to God. It doesn't belong to humans. You got to share it. 
And then there's some other things about, well, you can take these other, you can buy these other people to be your slaves. So there, there's some, it, the Torah is incredible. And our tradition is it's so progressive in many ways. And then in other ways, we really have to work on understanding the parts that don't sound as good. And we're not rejecting them, but really to understand them a little bit deeper. And, and and yet it it creates an interesting discussion around if the Torah is supposed to be fixed and it's the word of God, and yet rabbis have found all these workarounds to either avoid, ignore, change what's in the Torah to reflect modern times. You know, where where does that line get drawn? Well, I think God is loving it. I think God is saying, you know, we have the, the famous Tanur Achnai, the oven of Achnai that, that talks about God is defeated and God is loving it. And actually, John, that gets us to, we're getting close to wrapping up to Shavuot, the holiday of, of weeks that's coming up, because there the Torah says you should bring a mincha chadasha Hashem. You should bring a new gift to God. The new gift was wheat, two challahs made out of wheat, two loaves of bread, of chametz actually made out of wheat. But I think there's a, the broader idea is that God expects us, expects the rabbis, expects our tradition to come up with new understandings of the Torah. God doesn't want us just to say, well, this is what my ancestors, my parents and my grandparents and I do the same thing. You know, God wants us to really look at the Torah, look at our tradition and think of and say, what is, come up with a new understanding. And so I think that's sort of the theme of Shavuot, which is the holiday of receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai, ultimate holiday of tradition, of getting the revelation, God giving the whole Torah to the Jewish people and even the oral tradition. And it's the ultimate holiday of David Hartman, Rabbi David Hartman, just say the interpretive tradition that God says, yes, you got this tradition. You got the word of God. Now give me something new. Give me a new understanding of it. <laughs> right. And it, it is, if Pesach of Passover was the physical redemption, this is the spiritual redemption, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. It's really a, you know, you have seven weeks in between, like a lot of holidays have seven days there, you know, Sukkot and Pesach are, have intermediate days. Some people look at these seven weeks, these 49 days as intermediate weeks in between Passover, the holiday of freedom, and like you said, Shavuot, this this holiday of responsibility of receiving the Torah. And so actually, on Passover, you stay up late, you know, the Haggadah, we talked about that and the story, and then the rabbis say, when you go to sleep, go to sleep, that's fine. <laughs> Shavuot, more responsibility when you try to, you're supposed to stay up all night, so don't go to sleep, slap yourself, you know, wake up. Stay up. Right. And so the Tikkun Leil Shavuot is, is sort of the expression that's used for fixing the, the, the night of Shavuot when I guess at least according to the story that we we fell asleep when we we're about to be given the Torah. Oh, I don't know how that happened. If you know you're getting the Torah and God's holding a mountain above you, you know, I don't know if I'd be too sleepy. But anyway, that's that's at least what was said would happen. And to fix that, we stay up all night learning Torah. As I understand it, that, that custom is relatively modern, probably with the invention of coffee in the Ottoman Empire, but which actually stay up that late. But you and I have had some really fun ones back in the old neighborhood where we had at least the beginning, and this is a good example of being able to bring the communities together, reform, orthodox, and conservative, a panel of rabbis at the beginning to answer questions from each of their perspectives. 
Then we'd break up and then we'd experience sunrise over Lake Michigan, which was, you know, about as religious of an experience as we could have ever imagined. Oh, that was so amazing. And the one time actually the Tribune came out and took pictures of us there. And then we would go there all the time. And then someone's walking back, we'd wave to to the folks that had the, lived in Harbor Tower. Then one time we, we, so we got back kind of late because we were at the lake and there was another 15 minute walk back. And some people had already started praying. Like they said, oh, what do you need? So the romance ended a little bit when the community got bigger and people said, no, what do you need that? kind of wishy-washy, schmaltzy, going to the beach thing. Let's just dive in and go to bed. So Let the record reflect that that did not occur under my watch. No, you're right, John. It would not have occurred under your watch. So, But it's a great holiday. You know, one of the things I just love about Shavuot is its simplicity that it's, it's there's not matzah. They're not all the rules of Passover or building a sukkah. Or, you know, even some of the other holidays, Purim, you know, you got the dressing up and the this and the Megillah and all that. This is just hanging out and learning Torah and it, everything is so late and because you're supposed to start it only when it really gets dark. And so that's like in Detroit, it's like 9.45 p.m. So it's just really, I love it. And kind of the only, like you said, this custom of Tikkun Lil Shavuot staying up all night is pretty recent. And even the the custom of eating blintzes, cheese blintzes, and cheesecake, pretty recent stuff. But these are the best cheesecake and blintzes and ice cream. What what more could you want from a holiday? Well, there's one more thing to want, which is a story about Ruth. Oh yes, yes. So incredible story of kindness of all occurring at this time of the year when people are are you know harvesting the wheat. And Ruth is from a family that abandoned Israel, really, uh, during the famine and the way, way back in the time of the of the judges. And, and by the way, her her sister in law was Orpah, from which Oprah had her name. Oh, really? Yeah. So Orpah, these are two sisters that that were Moabites, where the family left from Israel, and the family married Moabites, intermarried. And when, unfortunately, their their Jewish husbands died and the Jewish father-in-law died and all you had was Naomi said, you know what, it's time to go back to the Holy Land, to Bethlehem. And uh, she tells, go, ladies, you know, Orpah and Ruth, don't don't come with me. You stay behind because they they both wanted to go with her Orpah also. But she says, no, you stay behind. So Orpah says, "Okay, you know. So Orpah <laughs> listens to her mother-in-law, but uh, Ruth says, no, I'm going with you. The ultimate convert coming saying, I want to be part of your nation. Your God is my God. Your people are my people. They go back to Israel and it's a wonder. I don't want to give away the whole story, John. I'm not going to give, but it's in. Well, we don't want spoiler alerts. People will be upset when they're reading yeah. the book on Shavuot. Yeah. You got to read it. Ends, it ends with the Messiah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, not the But it's uh, a beautiful four chapters. I cry up every time. There's a verse where Naomi is holding, again, I don't want to give it all away, but Naomi's holding her grandson. And this is a woman who lost her children. She's holding the grandson. And they say, Yulad Yelena Naomi, a child was born to Naomi. Oh, my gosh. What? 
just beautiful pathos. And that sets the tone. It's it's not the this is not an intellectual holiday, even though we might stay up all night learning Torah. It's a holiday of love and and kindness, chesed, which, you know, again, that goes back to the students of Rabbi Akiva, like, you can be so brilliant and understand Torah so well, but you got to have the heart and the love. And that's what this book is about. And we read it usually the second day outside of Israel, our first day in Israel. And I can't wait. What a great way to end. John, this has been great. And I know you're a little busy. So I hope everyone savors this podcast and we'll be back soon. Enjoy your Yontif, everyone. Thanks, Asher. Always a pleasure. Thanks, John. Thanks. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of A Rabbi and a Lawyer Walk Into a Bar. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to get our next episode delivered right to you. If you really like us, please consider leaving a review and sharing this with a friend. That would really help our efforts. And finally, to contact us and for more show-related information, please visit our website, rabbilawyerbar.com. Special thanks to our production team, David Stone for the introduction music, Andrew Bauman for the artwork, and I'm Nicholas Tantillo. This podcast is co-produced with Front and Social Studios in Chicago. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent. Copyrighted material, all rights reserved.